Good morning. Hope you'll forgive me. I'm uh, dealing a little bit with allergies this season, so I've got to have something to drink. I promise it's water. Uh, as you turn to your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, I would like to uh, bring you the greetings of True McConnell College, where I have the honor of serving as a professor of Christian studies. And I also would like to bring you the greetings of uh, First Baptist Church Cleveland, where my wife and I are members. I think it's one of those traditions that we see in the New Testament that's lost. As Baptists, uh, we are connected, even though our churches are independent, uh, but we are connected through the Spirit of God. And often, uh, Baptists have gone together in associations and conventions to do two things. One, to show the world that uh, Christ is working in all our lives. And two, to get together so that we can fund faces like True McConnell College, which is part of the Georgia Baptist Convention, or even our seminaries, which are supported by the Southern Baptist Convention. Often in this day and age where we're very individualistic, we forget to look at each other and encourage one another. And so I'd like for you to be encouraged that there's a church in Cleveland that loves you and cares about you and uh, wants to send their greetings to you. I don't know how much you've read or remember from your history classes about the Reformation. Um, we, uh, of course, know about Luther. Uh, some of us have heard the name Calvin. Others have even heard the name Zwingli. Uh, Hannah here had the uh, uh, privilege, I guess, yeah, uh, sitting through one of my Baptist history classes at 7 a.m. in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, uh, it's a good thing she's a coffee addict. Uh, because uh, definitely needed a lot of that that early in the morning. There's a small group, though, that uh, not many people have heard of, and that is the Anabaptists. In many ways, the Anabaptists are spiritual forefathers. Uh, in the middle of the Reformation, while Luther was uh, crying out, uh, uh, sola fide, only faith, right? Uh, sola gratia, only grace, and sola scriptura, only scripture, Truly, if we are honest with the historical evidence, it is the Anabaptists who really held on to this concept of only Scripture. Yes, the Reformers put away tradition. Uh, they put away a lot of things that the Roman Catholics were bringing to the table, uh, but often things kind of kept on sleeping in. But the Anabaptists were holding on to Scripture and Scripture alone. Uh, one said Anabaptist, uh, Camillo Rinato, who was uh, an Italian, uh, not much is known about the Italian Anabaptist, uh, as he was finishing a treatise on baptism and the Lord's Supper, I uh, thought it very apropos to end it by writing about Scripture. For his treatise in many ways was philological, uh, focusing only on the words of Scripture, not wanting to add anything or subtract anything from what Scripture has said. And he said the following words, he says, Scripture which having survived until now by the providence of God and by the movement of the Holy Spirit and through the work of the Apostle is a weapon sufficient to save us and to inform us all the necessary things, useful and central and final things of the Christian doctrine and custom. It is sufficient to defend ourselves from the bad doctrines of Satan and the Antichrist, and does not need new voices or new discourses or deductions or other curiosities. You see, for Renato, Scripture had to be central. Now, this is middle 1500s. Fast forward about 300 years to the middle 
1800s, and something is happening in Germany with the higher critical thought. And you have a gentleman by the name of Strauss who then would say, miracles have no rightful place in the history, but are simply mythical element in the sources. See, as Strauss looked at the Bible, he said, this is just myths. This is not history. This is not something historical that we're dealing with. This is mythology, Christian mythology, but still mythology. Eventually, about 50 years later, uh, Schweitzer writes a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in it he says, we must be prepared to find that the historical knowledge of the personality of the life of Jesus will not be a help, but perhaps even an offense to religion. Now, why do I start sharing with you all of this? There was a time early in the church's life where Scripture was central. And then during the Dark Ages, the church got away from that. As a matter of fact, for many centuries, the Bible was actually an illegal document. You could be arrested for owning a Bible. And then for the work of Wycliffe, for the work of Huss, uh, for the work of many during the Reformation... And in our Baptist father and our spiritual Anabaptist forefathers, there is a regaining of Scripture. But the enemy always knows that God's Word is what's going to lead us to Him. And so in this new generation, He has brought many who would tear down the Word of God, who would tell us, oh, those are just myths. Those things didn't really happen. Now, I chuckle every time I think through that because I think of the passage we're reading today in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting verses 16. Uh, scripture tells us that, <clears throat> For we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not having followed cleverly devised myths, but having been eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, Peter himself was dealing with people back then who claimed that Scripture was mythological. Peter himself was dealing with people who would say, well, really, Peter, this is not truth. This is a myth that you're talking about. And Peter answers and said, wait a minute, what we brought to you was not mythology like the Greek mythology, was not mythology like the Roman mythology, but what we brought to you was an eyewitness testimony. We saw these things with our own eyes. As a matter of fact, he would say in front of Sanhedrin, as we're told in Acts chapter 4, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and which we have heard. If you look at the whole book of Acts, the, the theme message for the book of Acts is Acts 1a, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And as you walk through the book of Acts, you see precisely that. The church being a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not just any witness. An eyewitness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These were people who had walked with Jesus. These were people who had talked with Jesus. These were people who had had supper with Jesus. They had seen him. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the prayers. They had seen the struggles. They had heard his words. 
And John, the beloved, would tell us in his word, as he introduces his letter in First uh, John chapter 1, that which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. See, they all presented themselves as eyewitnesses, as people who had experienced this. Now, why is that important? Well, let me refer myself to the younger members of our crowd here. Let me ask you a question, boys and girls. If somebody came up to you, let's say your mom and your dad and told you, I have seen outside a big reindeer, would you believe them? Yeah, you would, because mom and dad, not supposed to lie to you, right? And they saw it with their eyes, right? Now, if somebody comes to you and says, the cousin of my nephew, whose friend goes to school with my sister, told his grandfather, who told my grandmother that he saw a reindeer outside. Well, you might not believe it as much, right? Because it's gone for a lot of people. Remember the whole telephone game, right? You say something in somebody's ear, and it goes to somebody else, and it goes to somebody else, and eventually at the end it doesn't sound like what it started with. But here we have Peter who actually saw these things. And that's the point he's making. These are not cleverly devised myths. These are not things that were made up to fool us. Why is it important that it was eyewitnesses? Well, think about it. There are some people out there who are deluded enough that they might believe their own lies, right? They might tell you something that they really truly believe happened, but actually, in reality, did not happen. But what we have in Scripture is we have not just one, but many of these people, and not just any of these people, but people who are willing to die for this. Peter himself would be eventually crucified upside down. Paul would be beheaded. John would be dropped in boiling oil, and because he didn't die, they exiled him on the island of Patmos. These were people who, whose life was put on the line because they saw this and they believed in it enough to tell us about it. Now, specifically here, Peter is talking uh, not of everything that he's seen, but there's one object of contention that has to do with the power and the coming of the Lord. Now, this term parousia, this coming, is really specifically talking about the second coming of Jesus. We know this because in 2 Peter 3, as Peter continues to deal with uh, the people that are disagreeing with him, he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day by scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they, are, as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the facts that the heaven existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. And by the, and by, I'm sorry. And that by means of these, the world that they, ex, 
existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth and now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, there are people at this time in Christian history who are going, you tell us that Jesus is coming back, but where is he? He hasn't come back yet. Maybe this is just a myth. Maybe this is just a fable. Maybe this is just a story that you're telling me to keep me going. But ultimately, it's all false, Peter. And Peter says, no, no, it's not. Because I saw it with my eyes. And not only was he an eyewitness testimony, but he was a testimony of something that very few were there to testify. As Peter uh, continues, he tells us that he was an eyewitness testimony of something very special. He was an eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration of Jesus. And so he tells us, For when, we received on, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. You see, this is not just anybody testifying. This is Peter. This is the one who right before this had confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was Messiah, that Jesus was God. This is the one that would follow Jesus and often with a little too excitement had to pull this fool out, his foot out of his mouth. Uh, but this is Peter. He, with John and James, had seen Jesus in all his glory. Nobody else had done that. And Peter reminds us, I'm not just any eyewitness. I'm the one who saw this on the mount. I saw Jesus the way we will see him when he returns. I saw Jesus glorified. I heard the voice, the voice of God himself who told me, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. See, as Peter approaches this, he's probably remember, remembering Psalm 2. Whereas in Psalm 2, we are told, God speaking of Messiah, uh, yet I have set my king on my holy hill on Zion. You see, he tells us that he's sawing him on the holy mountain, the holy hill of Zion. I will de declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, Peter was not only pointing, and we'll see this more clearly in the rest of the passage, was not only pointing to the fact that he was an eyewitness, was not only pointing to the fact that he was an eyewitness of something very special, but he was pointing to the fact that he was an eyewitness of prophecy being fulfilled. He was an eyewitness of something that the Old Testament had said was going to happen, and he saw it happen in front of his eyes. He heard the voice. He saw the radiance and the majesty of God. Now, some of you might say at this point, okay, it's all fine and dandy. He was an eyewitness. He wrote all of this. But ultimately, we don't have Peter's writings, do we? At the end of the day, when uh, all is said and done, we have copies of copies of copies of copies that have been translated. And so, if you'll forgive me for a second, I'm going to depart from the passage and I want to deal with that question because I don't know about you, but having been a college professor in a variety of different places, uh, my background is also engineering, so I was teaching at TCU in the engineering department. I was teaching at St. Augustine's uh, College in Raleigh in engineering. I've dealt with a lot of people who are skeptical 
about Scripture. And often what you have is you have people that will tell us, well, okay, you've got the Bible. Sure, I'll even buy that this is an eyewitness testimony. But at the end of the day, what do we really have? We have a copy of a copy of a copy. Right? And everybody knows that when you copy something, you make mistakes. And not only that, but you know, those scribes are pesky little scribes. We know very well they changed the text left and right just to fit themselves. Oh, well, kings. Kings often had the Bible modified so it would fit their own agenda, wouldn't it? Well, let's look at the data and let's see if this makes any sense. If we look at the data, we have, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have in document-wise, uh, probably about 5,500 documents of just the Gospels. Okay? Now, just to, to make a comparison, the Iliad, we have three in the original Greek. Now, for the Gospels, we have about 2,500 uh, documents that are uh, continuous manuscripts, the whole Gospel, in the original Greek language. Uh, for uh, the Gospels, we also have about 2,700 lectionaries. A lectionary is... Uh, uh, a book that keeps scripture readings in the Roman Catholic or the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox churches. They read a certain passage of scripture on the same day every year. And those are kept in lectionaries. And so those are just quotes of scripture. So while they're not the entire gospels, they have quotations from the gospels uh, throughout the lectionaries. And then we had about uh, 300 fragments uh, and uh, just to show you a little bit, these are papyri uh, that are going to appear on your screen. And uh, on the papyrus, we have a main papyrus. That's a full document. And then on the side, you have a fragment. So as you can see, the fragment is just small pieces, right? They don't have the full word of uh, God on them. Uh, but there's enough on there to certify parts of it. So if we go back to, to the other slide, we have the Gospels, Right? 2,500 Greek manuscripts. Now, ultimately, there's going to be errors, right? So if I take all of the Bible and I look at the errors, I have about 10,000 variations. Now, that sounds like a lot, but if you count all the words in Scripture, 10,000 really isn't that much. And once you get rid of the spelling mistakes, once you get rid of the fact that sometimes they say Jesus Christ and other documents say Christ Jesus, once you get rid of the fact that some of them say Lord and others say Christ and others say Jesus, that narrows down to about a thousand differences between 5,500 documents. Now, can you imagine only a thousand difference between that many documents? And out of those, I would venture to say that most of those don't change the meanings, and the one that might change the meanings actually don't change the theology. And so when somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, the documents of Scripture are not valid. They've been changed over the years. They're full of mistakes. Huh? You tell them, no, sir. Because for the Gospels, about 99% of the text is identical. 99% of the Gospel in all 5,500 manuscripts matches up identical. Now, I venture to say there's very few ancient texts that have that level of accuracy. Now, some of you at this point say, well, you know, okay, so, so we can reproduce the original documents, but come on, they're all late manuscripts, aren't they? 
They came in later in the church. Well, actually, the papyri came in at the end of the first century, early second century. So you're talking about documents that we can date back to no more than 60 years after the life of Christ. Which means, by the way, that people were still alive back then when those documents came out. Ever wonder why in the book of Acts there are so many details, there are so many names, there are so many places? One of the reasons why is what Luke was actually making a very detailed history. And guess what? If your name had been in there and it was a lie, don't you think that you would have said something about it? Yeah, but yet we have no document, no, no uh, record of anybody saying that what was being described by Luke in the book of Acts was false. And so we have documents that are accurate. The documents that the Greek New Testament we have today is very valid. Uh, and, and some of them are, in many ways, fairly old. But not only that, but the myth that scribes make changes is pretty much that a myth. Anybody here familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, a few of you are familiar with Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were a very uh, uh, revolutionary uh, discovery. Right In 1947, a little Bedouin boy was looking for a sheep. He takes a stone, he throws it in a cave. It makes a noise that doesn't sound like a sheep. Right? I mean, if you throw a stone to a sheep, they go, uh, but it, it sounded more like a, a, a vase breaking. And so he climbs into the cave and he goes and looks at it and he finds these rolls, these manuscripts. And so, of course, he goes into town and tells the adults about it. Dead Sea Scrolls are documents, uh, on top of the, the writings of the Qumran Society, are copies of the Old Testament that date back to the time of Jesus. Now, before discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest Hebrew manuscript that we had was dating about 1200. So these documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls are 1,200 years younger, if you want, than the, the earliest manuscript we had at the time. Guess what, what, hap what happened when they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to the earliest Hebrew manuscript that we had? They are nearly identical. Why? Because the scribe believed in copying exactly and being very careful in copying the text of Scripture. And so, not only do we have eyewitness testimony, not only do we have a text uh, that is actually fairly solid, uh, we can reproduce, even the book of Revelation, look, uh, the book of Revelation is the one that has the most changes to it. It's kind of ironic since it's the one that promises curses to the one who changes the text of it, right? Uh, but it is the one that has the most changes because it, it's one of the most difficult books, and so you could see how people were trying to make sense of it and making some changes in the process. But even the book of Revelation, you're talking anywhere between 85 and 95% accuracy. So eyewitness testimony... Accurate text, old text, and really a tradition of copying which is very sure. You put all that together and you go, okay, the text we have in front of us is a great copy of God's word. Now let's get back to what Peter had to say about this. After Peter introduced himself and he says, you know, what we have, what we gave you is the eyewitness testimony. Then he continues and he says, and we have something sure the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamb shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men from God spoke as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. So not only was this eyewitness testimony, not only was this a special eyewitness testimony, but this was a testimony of Scripture being fulfilled. And at this point, Peter says, let me tell you about Scripture. What we have in Scripture is something sure. Now, there's some arguments here in the language. Uh, the, the, the term here is a comparative term. So in some of your Bible, you might have something more sure. Right? Uh, it could be a, a good translation of that. Uh, some other Bibles were, were saying, well, you know what? More sure doesn't make any sense because if Peter is making a point that his eyewitness testimony should be listened to, he wouldn't say that there's something more sure than his eyewitness testimony. And so some scriptures have translated the prophetic word made sure or confirmed. But that word order just doesn't make any sense in the Greek to me. Uh, and so I've just translated it as something sure. Uh, because that's what we have. We have something sure in Scripture. Why do we have something sure in Scripture? What is that we have something sure? Well, first of all, it's this prophetic word. Well, prophetic word. So, so is he talking about the New Testament? Well, probably not, actually, because he's talking about the prophecy of Scripture, right? The New Testament, a lot of it hadn't been written down yet. And so he's probably talking about the Old Testament, He's saying to these people of his time and to us today that what we have in the Old Testament is sure. Now, by parallel, we can apply this also to the New Testament uh, because, as he's just told us, the New Testament is the eyewitness testimony. But what we have in the Old Testament is something that is sure. And because it is sure, what should we do with it? What does the text say? We should pay attention, Right? I mean, if this is God speaking to us, which is pretty much what Peter is trying to tell us, uh, and he will in, in the end of the passage, then what should we do with what he has to say? Well, we should listen. I mean, think about it. If your creator, the one who put you here on this planet, has something to tell you, then what should we do? We should listen. We should listen, and Peter says we should listen to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. We live in a sinful world, don't we? I would call this a dark place in many ways. One of the reasons why, as believers, we gather regularly is to encourage one another, because it's not easy. If you're trying to live the Christian life, it's not easy to be out there. And so what happens when you're in the dark? Well, you reach for the light switch. You reach for a lamp, don't you? And so Peter says, this is the image that I'm presenting to you, that Scripture sheds light into the darkness of our sinfulness. And then he says, we should do this until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Well, who is the morning star? Well, in Revelation, Christ Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. And so what is Peter saying? Well, there's one more clue here that we're missing, is that all of this is in the subjunctive mood, which means that it's a potential. You see, we need to listen to this so it has the potential of creating dawn, of creating light in us, of allowing Christ to rise in our hearts. Most probably at this point, Peter was talking to people who didn't know Christ. Right? In a congregation this size, I can assure you there are some among you 
who don't know Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. You might have uh, been even born as part of this congregation. You might have been here all your life. You might have been raised in a Christian home. Uh, but truly, if you ask yourself the question, do I truly have a relationship with Christ? If you're honest with yourself, you would say no. See, because the Word of God has shown some light in your life, but you haven't allowed it to transform you. The morning star has tried to rise in your heart, but you haven't allowed it to take hold of your life. Often, as a, as a professor, um, I have students coming to my office, and usually it's because they're not doing well, they're failing on a test or something of the like. And so I always take the opportunity uh, to see where they stand with Christ. As I teach a truth, most of our students uh, claim to be believers, so I approach them saying, you claim to be a believer. Am I correct? They say yes, and then I ask them a few questions. Uh, when I have taught in the past at secular universities, I've always tried to find a bridge that allowed me to get to those questions with my students. So I remember very vividly, uh, one student in uh, Raleigh who came up to me and we were having a conversation about class and she said, you know, I've had a tough week. I've got to go to church to get me some peas this weekend. And so I asked her, I said, what do you mean go to church to get you some peas? And of course she thought, oh, here's this engineering science professor. He's probably an atheist. So she got very defensive real quick. And I reassured her, I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not denying that you can get peace when you gather with believers. But I'm trying to figure out why that's where you go to. And so she starts and proceeds to tell me, well, you know, I've, I've been saved. And so I asked her, I said, what's it mean to be saved? She wasn't sure. I said, okay, so what's it mean to be a Christian? She wasn't too sure about that either. And so I asked her this question, how can you be something that you don't know what it means to be? It made her think. And then I said, do you mind if I show you in Scripture what does it mean to be a Christian? And so I took her down the Roman road. We looked at that. And I said, does that describe you? And she says, I don't think so. And I said, so based on your own admission, you're not a Christian. She says, I guess not. Well, she had to go. A week later, she comes back to my office. She said, Dr. DeSoe, it really bothers me that you told me I'm not a Christian. I said, wait, wait a minute. I didn't tell you you weren't a Christian. You told me. Yeah, yeah, but it really bothers me. I was like, I'm glad it bothers you. I'm happy it bothers you. <coughs> and then she, as we're talking, I say, well, here, here's the fact. In Scripture, it tells us that we will know believers by their works. Right? There's going to be fruits in their lives. And she says, oh, yes, the fruits of the Spirit. And she starts listing all of them. And she gets about halfway through the list, and she looks at me with a somber look and says, I've got none of those in my life. And I said, well, then you've got your answer. It took a while longer, but by the time I met her at the end of that semester, I was leaving Raleigh, headed towards uh, uh, Fort Worth. Uh, I talked to a girl on the bench outside who was a different person. She had finally met Jesus. I hadn't had the privilege of introducing her to a Savior, but it was one of those links on the chain that helped her get there. So this is why I tell you there are some of you today that might be in that exact situation. 
and Peter is imploring with you, the Holy Spirit is imploring with you, allow the light of Scripture to shine into your life. Allow it to light up your heart. Uh, allow the morning star to come and rise in your life. Uh, you know, it, it's not that easy. I'm sorry. It's not that hard. It's like a beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. It's all about recognizing that we are sinners and that sin is a problem that God will judge. And on that day, when you'll have to give account to your life, there's nothing that you have done, no church attendance, no good deeds that will allow you to get into heaven. The only thing that will is the blood of Christ. And so realizing that you are a sinner, that God has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, but didn't stay dead, was raised again three days later, and now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and it is through believing that his blood has covered your sins that you may be saved. Let me urge you, as Peter is urging you, to consider that message today. Allow that word of God to shine as a lamp in a dark place. Now, some of you are still holding back and say, but, but how do I know that all of this is true? And this is Peter telling us it is something sure, and it's sure not because it's from eyewitness testimony, but because it's from God himself. And so he continues, it says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation... For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but holy men from God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul would tell us something similar to this in 2 Timothy 3.16. He would tell us all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be competent and equipped uh, for every good work. <coughs> Excuse me. So at the end of the day, you've got a choice. You can go down the route that Strauss and some of the others in German higher criticism went down and said, you know what? The Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus of history are different. Or you can believe Scripture at face value you can look at it and realize that it was given to us by eyewitness testimony. It was given to us by people who saw something that nobody else had seen. It was given to us by people who were willing to die because they believed what they had seen. And ultimately, what we have in the Bible is something sure, even something more sure than that. The Word of God Himself who as he worked in the life of men, inspired them to write the word of Scripture. Inspired them to write everything through the work of his Spirit, that as we read it, his Spirit might work in our life and transform us. For the ones of us who are believers, lead us to a godly life. Help us persevere until that glorious day when Christ returns. And for the ones of you who are unbelievers, to present you with the message of salvation, the message of hope, 
so that one day when Christ returns, you might not be ashamed, but you might have his blood cover your sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you that your word is sure. But Father, that we're not following myths, we're not following fables. Father, the world out there tells us that what we believe in Scripture is all foolishness, but it's not historical. But the more we go, the more they dig, the more Scripture seems to be proven true. And so, God, may we hold on to that truth. May we allow it to transform us as believers. May the ones here today who do not know you allow it to transform them as unbelievers, knowing that they're not believing in fables but believing in the word of the Almighty God who loves them and cares about them and cares about their souls. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. As our musicians play, this is a time of invitation. What does that mean? Sometimes we go through the motions, but we don't think about it. This is a time for you as you are thinking through the passage, as you're thinking through what God has done throughout the week. For you to answer back to him and say, Father, I want to change. I want to be transformed. Now, whether it's because you do not know him and you know that you need to know him, get that settled today. Or maybe it's because you have a problem with your brother or your sister. Why don't you take today to go over to them and give them a hug and give forgiveness where forgiveness should be given and love where love should be given. Some of you might need to uh, dedicate your life to serve God. Whatever it is that God is telling you today, do it and do it now. You'll never regret it.